Shall we pray? Our Father, we would ask that you would be pleased to give us an understanding into your word. May it be clear. May it also, Father, be applied to our hearts with conviction and confidence and joy by the work of the Holy Spirit. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Please open God's word with me to Luke 21, which we were reading earlier. Luke 21, page 880 in the Church Bible. This is probably Wednesday of this last week of Christ's ministry on earth between the week between Palm Sunday and his crucifixion. At this period of time, the Jews were getting along very well with the Romans, if you can consider subjugation getting along well. It was always chafing with them. But they were living at a period of history known as the Pax Romano, which was the Roman peace through the whole known world. Everyone benefited from this. So the idea of a temple to be destroyed, especially one that was being built by a Roman king, was just far-fetched. So much so that when the Lord gave this prophecy that the temple was to be destroyed and made desolate, it just sounded inconceivable to the disciples. So they just thought, well, if the temple's to be destroyed, then that must be, Christ must be talking about God's judgment at the end of time, because surely Jerusalem is going to stand to the very last day. They put these two events together, Christ's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem with the very end of history. As the parallel passage in Matthew 24 records, uh, tell us when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. In their minds, you see, they're not asking different questions. They understood the temple to stand until the end of time. So if the temple was to be destroyed, that must be the end of time, and therefore Christ's return. Well, Christ answers them and corrects their understanding. He separates the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to be a separate event from the end of history, his second coming, which has now been a long period of time, over 2,000 years between A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, and Christ's second coming. Jesus said it clearly in this passage, verse 9, the, the end is not yet, uh, it will not be at once, the end referring to the end of the age. The full glory of Christ's kingdom doesn't start at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, but rather there's going to be a long time. Verse 10, it's going to be a long time for a nation to rise against nation. As Matthew 24 tells us, it's going to take time for the gospel to go into all the earth. Quote, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Revelation tells us it's only when the last of God's elect is brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ before Christ returns. This is a difficult chapter, but we believe that Christ is describing three things in this chapter, and that will help us navigate the chapter. He's describing the destruction of Jerusalem, which we looked at last time. But the disciples raised this question, the end of the age, and so Jesus also refers to his second coming. But his focus on the chapter is 
How do you live between those two events? So consider with me today Jesus' description of the event of his return, Jesus' description of the period until he returns, and then Jesus' direction for living in this period until he returns. First of all, Jesus' description of the event of his return, his second coming, and there's four descriptions here. Christ's second coming, his return will be a terror. Secondly, it will be a triumph. Thirdly, it will be a joy. And fourth, it's a guarantee. Christ's second coming is, first of all, to be a terror to the unsaved, verses 24b through 27. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Jesus has just spoken of this period of time when Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. We looked at that last time. We believe it's the period that we're now in, the period after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, Pentecost, when the spiritual covenant is taken from Old Testament Israel, and Israel has rejected the gospel, and Israel therefore is rejected, lo ami, and the gospel goes into the Gentiles. Largely, the, the church now is being built by Gentiles and those who come to faith in the Jesus Christ, and so the Gentiles are being given the privilege that were once Old Testament Israel. In this period of history, God is harvesting a church from the Gentiles and not from Jerusalem primarily, but it's after these times of the Gentiles that Jesus, verse 27, will return in glory, in clouds of great glory. And then every eye will see him, and every knee will be bow before him. So Jesus, speaking of his second coming, verse 25, says, There will be signs in heaven and on earth, so that the unbelievers will be terrified. What are these? Well, we have either... To say that it's literally God shaking the universe, as we know the scriptures do teach. Second Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And is that what's being described here? Perhaps. It could also be that these are Old Testament descriptions of when God brings a judgment and a military conqueror to a nation, and their world just falls apart. Very powerful uh, poetical expressions for example, uh, several examples, but just one, Isaiah 13, on God speaking of the oracle of the destruction of Babylon. And listen to all the parallels here in Luke 21 of the end of the age. Babylon, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners in it. For the stars of their heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. 
and I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them, those who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. What a powerful way of describing God bringing another nation on another nation to execute his judgment and his wrath. It's going to be as if the sun is gone, the moon is gone, the earth is shaking. Either way... When Christ returns with glory, the hearts of the unbelievers are going to melt in terror. They're going to be crying for the mountains to fall and to cover them. They'd rather be buried with rock than face the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6. The horror, the hopelessness for the wicked world, all of those outside of Jesus Christ. There's only going to be two groups of people on that day when Christ returns. Those who, in terror, are facing Jesus Christ as their judge. Or those who are facing Jesus Christ in joy as their redeemer. And the only way to be prepared for that day is to decide now to commit one's life in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only way to meet him with joy. That Christ's return is going to be a day of terror for the unsaved. It's also going to be a day of triumph for his glory, verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Don't miss it. This is a a quote, a reference back to Daniel 7. Where the Son of Man who appears before God, the Ancient of Days, is given a kingdom that will not end. And he's described as the Son of Man coming with power and on the clouds with power and glory. And Jesus is taking Daniel 7 and he's saying, when I return, that's the fulfillment of Daniel 7. I'm claiming this, the Son of Man to come with power and great glory. Very clear claim to his deity. It's to Christ's return will be a triumph of his glory. Christ's return is going to be a terror to the unsaved. It will be a triumph of his glory. It will be a joy for his people. Don't you love verse 28? And when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Even when it seems like it's the end of the world. Even it seems when your life is falling apart. Even when you think the nations of the world are losing their way. Even when you see all of the oppression against God and against his kingdom, he's in heaven and he will laugh. You, believer, never give way to discouragement, never give way to fear, never give way to despair. Lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing near. And why can we have this joy? Why can we have this peace? Because of the fourth description of Christ's return, it's guaranteed. Christ gives this parable first of 
showing that his certainty of his return, verse 29, he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer's already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Everyone sees when a tree is budding, spring is near. You can't change, you can't stop the changing of the seasons. Everybody will know when Christ returns. Riken writes, as surely as summer follows springtime, the words of Jesus will all come true. From the fall of Jerusalem to the end of the world, when the Son of Man will come with power and everlasting glory. This little parable, everybody knows when spring's coming. The certainty of Christ's return. It's also the promise of his return, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. This creation's not permanent, but my word is As we looked at last time, why can he say my word? It's another claim to deity. He is God. Jesus is saying you can absolutely count on my teaching, all of it. In contrast to this world where there's no absolutes anymore and everybody speaks of their true truth. Jesus is saying just as I've spoken of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is yet to come 40 years, it all came to pass. It's absolutely true. You can count on it. So too you can count on everything that I'm teaching about the end of history You can count on it when I say to you that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Everything I've taught you about the gospel, you can count on it. You can count on everything that I've said. It's absolutely true. All my teachings, all my warnings, all my promises. Absolutely certainty. The word of God will come to pass as he's moving history toward the end and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the eternal new heavens and the new earth. His word will never fail you. The promise of certainty, the parable of certainty. Then who are these people? Verse 32, this generation, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. By generation, I think it's helpful to realize that Jesus here is not referring to time. He's not referring to the people then living as if they would still be alive for Christ's second coming. Albert Schweitzer, in his book, Quest for the Historical Jesus, said that's what Jesus meant. Everybody who was living then would still be alive when he returned. But Jesus was wrong. And so, therefore, he led many people astray. But if Jesus led everybody astray and he was mistaken about those who would be alive at his return, then he doesn't really mean, verse 33, that his word is absolutely true. If this promise is false, then everything he's taught and claimed is false, and he's not God. Generation here is not referring to time. It's not to those people then living. It's not referring to time. It's referring to a type of people. Eight times already in the Gospel of Luke, generation is referring to a a negative term. It's a derogatory term, as in Luke 9.41, a faithless and perverse generation. Jesus is not talking about when they live, but how they live. He's talking about their character, as the people who died in Noah's flood were an evil generation, Genesis 6. The children of Israel that wandered in the desert were a perverse generation, Numbers 32. Jesus is not talking about time. He's talking about a type of people. Jesus is talking about people who have been, are, and will be light-rejecting, kingdom-opposing, Messiah-spurning people. Davis, 
So when Christ returns, Jesus is saying there's going to be a generation, that type of people, that generation of Christ-rejecting people, but by no means will they escape eternal judgment. Jesus, in this chapter, is first of all describing the event of his return. And then secondly, Jesus is describing the period in between now these two events until he returns from the destruction of Jerusalem to his second coming. What will that look like? He's teaching, this is the period that you're living in. You should first of all expect false religion, verse 8. And he said to them, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. There's going to be false teaching and false forms of Christianity flourishing in every age. There was certainly in the times of the apostles. There's going to be all through church history. So whether it's Sung Young Moon or David Koresh or Jim Jones, every generation. But the true coming of Jesus Christ is going to be unmistakable. He's coming with power on the clouds and great glory and the whole earth will see it. So if you have any doubt in your mind about the claim of someone that they are the Messiah, he's not the Messiah because Christ's coming is unmistakable. You will not miss it when he comes. Expect false religions. Expect global disorders, war and conflicts and famines and earthquakes and etc. Verse 9 And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end, at the end of the ages, will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But they're not the end of history. They're not the end yet, Mark says. They're just the labor pains. Mark 13, 8, of a new creation that's on its way. These things must all happen. During this period, during the whole 2,000 years, these things happened in the Roman Empire. They occurred on earth, will continue to the return of Jesus Christ in every generation to a greater or lesser degree. They're a mark of this fallen, broken world, groaning for the return of Jesus Christ. The end of the World War I was just over 100 years ago, 1918. It was known as the war to end all wars, they thought. It wasn't the case. Just in the last 100 years since World War I, would you have any guess of how many major wars there have been in the world in the last 100 years? 260. This year, there are 10 official wars, eight active military conflicts recognized by the United States. There's also other violent conflicts involving 64 countries, 576 militias and separatist groups. Estimates suggest that for the 362 days of the year, there's a conflict going on somewhere in the world. And this excludes any civil wars or internal conflicts. Estimates suggest that in the past 3,400 years of documented history, there have only been 250 years of peace. Some suggest that there's only been 26 days of peace. 
expect global disorders and war and conflict and earthquakes throughout this whole time. Third, expect Christian persecution to be hated for being my disciples, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you gain your lives. Verse 12, but before all this, perhaps this is even describing that first generation before he even begin this whole period until Christ returns, particularly around the destruction of Jerusalem. Watch out. But it is a description of believers to all the rest of history, even as you lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Persecution is going to come from all directions. It's even going to divide families. But endure. Matthew's parallel of this account is a bit longer. He adds two other descriptions of this whole period. Expect apostasy, Matthew 24.10. Many will fall away and betray one another. And hate one another. Many in the visible church will fall away and betray even other Christians. And then expect lawlessness and growing evil. Matthew 24, 11, lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Lawlessness is when a nation or a people throw off restraint and laws. They throw off Christian heritage in our own country and Choose rather hedonism and narcissism and materialism and humanism and atheistic atheism, secular atheism. The world tries to press you into its mold. The world is saying to you, come, live after the the lust of the flesh and Satan and the devil. It's a lot more fun. And the love of many will grow cold. During this whole period of time, some now 2,000 years, The scripture teaches us that the gospel will go into all the world. And there will be a church for Jesus Christ from every nation and tribe and tongue and people. How often Revelation shows us that beautiful picture. Disciples from all the nations. But along with it, there's going to be a struggle and difficulty to the very end. Don't be surprised. All these difficulties and earthquakes and nations and Some have said these are not like the signs of of the very, very end of the age. Jesus is just about to return. They're not like signs on Route 80 that says exit in one mile. So when you see these things and you're not counting up how many earthquakes and say, oh, the mile marker must be coming. Jesus might be coming in the next two days. It's not that sense of a road sign. These are more like the caution road signs. No shoulder, poor visibility ahead, deer crossing. Those are the signs for the whole journey. And that's what Jesus is saying until I come back again. This is what you're going to be facing so that you endure, so that you're not caught off guard, so that you don't go into a tailspin when life gets difficult. 
Here's a reality check. The last generation, it's the evangelical church largely has developed a view of the end times that's very suited to a comfortable lifestyle. Many people have been told, before it gets too bad, Christians are going to be taken out of here by a secret rapture. But that's not what the Lord's teaching. Nowhere does the Bible teach a secret rapture. Oh, it does teach the rapture of the church, the church gathered up to meet Christ, absolutely. And we will gather with the church already in heaven and we will join Christ and come back to earth for the last judgment. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that the rapture is secret and nowhere does it teach that it happens before the end of the world. It is the end of the world. But until then, Jesus is saying to to Christians in all generations, settle down for the long haul. This is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a good fight. It's going to be a warfare. It's going to be wrestling. All those descriptions. We might not see the same sufferings yet that other nations do, such as Eritrea, putting professing Christians in shipping crates in the middle of the desert just for being Christians. But it's here already, and it's in different forms. You know that in Canada, now it's against the law for Christian counselors and pastors to apply all of God's word. In counseling or in preaching, you will go to jail. Or the United States, the increased hardship that many of you face in the workplace. Why is it that only evangelical Christians are mocked in Hollywood? Christ is blasphemed. Would never blaspheme anybody in Islam or any other religion. What's going on? Well, Jesus told you, you need to be prepared to endure hardship until I return. Jesus described the event of his return. He describes the period in between. And that leaves us then with this third question, then what then Jesus' direction. How do we live during this period? In light of the hardship that we will face, Jesus gives some very practical words of counsel. Verse Eight, don't be deceived. See that you're not led astray. Watch out all the time, measuring everything according to the word of God. Don't be misled. Don't be occupying yourselves with signs, being on guard, be on guard for false teachers and false messiahs. Don't be misled by people's prophecies and false teaching and those claiming to be Christ. It's, no, when Christ returns, verse 34, it's going to come like a trap. <laughs> Suddenly, Nobody's going to know when he's coming. Don't be deceived of any other message that doesn't also include a theology of suffering for Christ's church. So when you hear of teachers that teach that today all can go well and healthy and wealthy and you can have your best life now, that's a false teacher. Jesus said you cannot escape hardship and difficulty in this age. Do not expect that all will be well But until the coming of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a long period of the church in battle and suffering and trials. Get ready for hardship. Don't be deceived. The second direction for living in this time is don't be disturbed. Verse 9, don't be terrified. Don't live in fear. Don't live in discouragement. 
God's in control. He will give you grace. It's always been sufficient for his people. The church will last and endure to the very end. And he's going to bring you through this. He's going to bring his church through this. Don't you love verse 18? Not a hair of your head will perish. He knows his people. And he will bring them through. So the Christian affirms this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4.17. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, Romans 8.18. So the apostle says, I can count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Don't be deceived, don't be disturbed. Third, don't be unprepared. Verses 34, 36, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Don't be unprepared. Jesus says, I've already prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. It all came to pass. I've told you that I'm returning again in great glory, and every eye will see me, and it will come to pass. Be ready for that day. So verse 34, first it says it in the negative. Don't be caught unaware. Don't be caught unprepared. The only way is to have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it says it in the positive. Watch, verse 34. It says it again, verse 36. Stay awake, or the NIV says, stay on the watch. How are you going to be watching for the coming of Christ? Jesus says, watch for these two things. Watch for distractions. You can fall either way. You can get derailed either way. Verse 34, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation, which means squandering your resources, squandering your money, wasteful drunkenness. That's the party mindset of the world. Turn your brain off and just live for pleasure and self-indulgent and pleasures of this life. You don't have to think about eternity. Be distracted. Be derailed from thinking about eternity. The dissipations of life or the anxieties of life. So gripped with fears and hardships and troubles that you're... Again, you're not looking to Christ and his coming. Satan doesn't really care if you end up parting away or living in anxiety. Hold up in your home. Watch for distractions. Verse 36, here's how you watch. You watch by praying. It's the present participle. Always praying. Keep on the watch. Continually praying. Your prayer life is the key for how you're going to watch for the return of Jesus Christ. Your prayer life for yourself and your family and for others. Daily praying for grace. Daily praying for courage. Daily that you not grow weary. Daily that you give honor to Christ this day. Daily that you seek his kingdom first. If you don't have a prayer life, you're not watching. You're not ready for Christ's return. James Boyce was still working on this hymn when he died. He was an example of always watching for the return of Jesus Christ. This was his hymn. We do not know if Christ will come when life is rough or steady. We only know what Jesus said. Keep watching and be ready. Keep watching for Christ will appear at night or some bright morning like lightning flashing through the sky without a moment's warning. 
Be ready when the Lord descends to render final judgment, when men shall rise to heaven's joy or suffer dreadful torment. So watch with care, in grace abound, get ready soon to greet him, that when you hear the trumpet's sound, you'll be prepared to meet him. Brothers and sisters, straighten up, lift up your head, because your Redeemer is drawing near. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are just taken again with the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Heading to his death in a day or two, he speaks like this of his second coming and his coming in great glory and majesty and because he knows your will is accomplished and his redemption and his certain future glory is sure. We're also struck with our, fa- with our Father, with Christ's great love for his church, that he would speak this way to prepare us to be un- not unprepared, but ready and always watching and always praying, trusting you for daily grace. Thank you for the Lord's Supper today. We come here acknowledging we're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ And how we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in his name. Amen.